Audio Network. And hello, everyone, and welcome once again. You're listening to Truth Warrior right here on Truth Frequency Radio. And as always, I'm your host. My name is David Whitehead, and I will be with you for the rest of the show tonight. And we have a very exciting and informative show ahead of this this evening. I'm very excited about it. And today it is Monday, November the 4th, 2013. We're all still here, or at least some of us are. And hopefully we can figure out what's going on so that we can remain on that track of being able to continue shedding the light on our history, uh, shedding the light on what's going on presently around the world, and hopefully we can find some solutions to some kind of a realistic future that has some sort of semblance of sanity left in it. And that, of course, is the goal. And tonight's show, we're really going to be digging up the past and trying to figure out where this, all these different memes came from in our society, all of these different methods of, well, control, ultimately, that we see everywhere, uh, the restriction on freedom, the constant propaganda that is put in our face by the mainstream media, and uh, somewhat from the alternative media as well. It's hard to kind of weed that out, but um, nonetheless, we have these tools at our disposal today where we can have access to great information. We can talk to people that have experience in this field, try to get their opinion on it, and ultimately go out and do our own due diligence, do our own investigation, our own research, and to try to figure out this puzzle so that we can get a bearing on where we are. And I think that's really one of the things that, when I look at this, I see that when I speak to most people and when I think about how I used to actually think, the main thing is that we're kind of lost. We don't really have a grip on how all this came to be around us, you know, all this corruption, you know, all these wars, the constant perpetual state of war, uh, whether it's physical war between countries and nations or whether it's a war on consciousness itself, a war on your mind. And we see this going on all the time where a lot of these ideas are put forward and people just buy them up without even thinking twice about them. And they just they go along with what they're told and they don't really take that extra time to do the necessary investigation and research into what they're being told in order to formulate some kind of opinion and especially a critical or objective type of an opinion. And so we're really trying to open up our minds and find out where we went wrong, where we went wrong in the past, what's going on in the world today. And I have none other than Alan Watt here with us. And his website, of course, is cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And I came across Alan's work oh, probably, probably about five years ago or so. And I saw him do some very good breakdowns on a lot of the social engineering, the topic of social engineering, eugenics, um, culture creation, and, and many, many other topics. He has a very diverse background. He's a fellow Canadian. And I'll just give you a quick background on, on him for anybody that might not be familiar with his work. Uh, Alan Watt, is, he's a longtime researcher into the causative forces behind major changes in historical development. His background is that of a Renaissance man with a background in three professions. He's also done various books, and he's published various books on the subjects of religion, philosophy, and poetry, mainly under, under pseudonyms. And for much of his life, he was heavily involved in the music industry as a singer, songwriter, and performer, and was involved in folk music, blues, pop, rock, and even classical. And he's also known for his session guitar work, and he's played with some of the most well-known artists and groups around. He was originally born in Scotland and 
he was there watching the subtleties of uh, the politics and the media as they guided the population of the UK covertly into a European amalgamation. And he's been warning the North American people for some years now that the same process of amalgamation is being carried out. And with historical documentation, he shows documentation. He shows how cultures are created and altered by those in control, always to lead the people like sheep into the next pasture. So it's a great honor and a privilege to have Alan Watt on the show with us tonight. So Alan, thank you so much for coming on, and welcome to the show. I'm happy to be on. Thanks. Yeah, well, I'm very glad to bring you on. I, like I said, I've been following your work for some time. I think that uh, the the areas that you focus on studying the minds, the mindset of these elite social engineers, um, and they pretty much brag that that's exactly what they are. Uh, you've done a lot of great work into reading it through their words, and that's always something that's very interesting, is that when you talk to people about this kind of stuff originally, they just think that, oh, you're just some crazy guy coming up with these theories yourself, and you just want to see what you want to see and all this stuff. But when you actually go down and look at the documentation that is absolutely replete throughout history, you know, and all the different uh, sources that you've referenced, it's clear to see that this isn't something that we're coming up with. This is actually something that those that have taken control of all the different areas of our society, uh, this is what they believe. This, this is their, their viewpoint. And so I really wanted to bring you on to get into that in detail. And I wondered if maybe you um, wanted to get started discussing how the society that we see now was actually brought into being and, and maybe some of the history of that because, I mean, we both live here in Canada and I, I don't know about you, but I, I look around at a lot of people here and we're very, very complacent and apathetic. We, we really feel like we're privileged. I mean, we are to some extent, but there, there's a, a lot of people don't feel like they have any reason to go out and look into this because, of course, it's only happening everywhere else. <laughs> and so it's, I just wondered maybe if you wanted to get into that and, and maybe even bring in a bit of a Canadian perspective into this and how you see it happening here in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, Canada is interesting in itself because it's still, whether people like it or not, uh, part of the British Commonwealth. And uh, I used to ask the same question, how are, why are Canadians so complacent? And uh, it was a foreigner who told me, who lived in Canada, and he said it's because they're, they're basically still a, a form of a colony. They're still tied to Britain and the Commonwealth, same with Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And I got into that aspect uh, a long time ago because I got hold of the old books by the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London. And this private organization was comprised of the wealthiest uh, tycoons, and bankers, international bankers, uh, based in London, of course. Uh, so they, they formed a private club, basically, to run the old British Empire, even in, in the 1800s. There's a different name, of course. They had the Lord Alfred Milner Group. That went right into the 20th century. And they fomented the wars for takeovers of resources for themselves, of course, by using countries uh, and patriotism while they looted the countries for themselves privately. The taxpayer ended up getting the bills for all the wars and so on, and it's still still going on today. However, they went into World War I, and Britain at that time had agreed to set up an organization in the U.S., and that's why their go-between was Lord L. Grey. L. Grey was the the go-between for the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the U.S. and Canada, 
and uh, in, in the U.S. he formed uh, they formed the, the Council on Foreign Relations along with uh, uh, Rockefeller, and um, and they also got Colonel Mandel House that was uh, the, the top advisor to President Wilson, getting them ready for for World War One. Timothy Hsu would commence it with the U.S. But the big thing too was uh, with the collusion of the banks in London, the private banks. Uh, they would also borrow money uh, to, to to pay for all these wars. So France was borrowing from the U.S. And, of course, they just brought in the Federal Reserve. The Mandel House had a lot to do with, by the way. And uh, in time for it, so they could tax the taxpayer and pay all the lenders back again, you see. Still going on today. It haven't changed it since the Federal Reserve. So they, they arranged the whole thing prior, just prior to World War One. They brought on a German banker to take care of the U.S. side and left his brother in Germany to take care of World War I's German side. They were the war, uh, was it Warburger uh, family. So the two guys ran, ran the finances for both sides. They're the U.S. and all the countries that loaned uh, and, and borrowed money from the U.S., and the U.S. got tremendously rich from World War One, And then, of course, you had guys like Rudyard Kipling, who came over and spoke to the Senate and gave his famous talk with the, on the white man's burden, uh, passing the torch on to you. He said Britain basically was broke with all these wars and empire building, and they'd pass the torch on to the U.S., but they would still be kind of equal partners in the say of it. Well, Canada had a version of it too, their own version of Council on Foreign Relations, Australia, New Zealand, they still have today. And they changed the name in Canada in 2005 after Lloyd Axworthy came on television and talked about the amalgamation for NAFTA, completely joining the American continent together, which was the plan, of course, for the Royal Street International Affairs and its foreign counterparts or members called the CFR. Was that the uh, Council uh, or Canadian Council of Chief Executives? Was that the branch of the CFR that that became that here in Canada? Or they actually had a, they actually called it uh, a Council on Foreign Relations branch. At least in two thousand five, Axworthy appeared on Canadian television, uh, CBC and Global. I think it was too. I, I recorded it because I knew we'd never see it again. Uh, but he spoke on behalf and for the CFR. This is this is the, the guy who was assistant prime minister at one time, uh, and here he is talking in collusion with the U.S. when the three amigos met the president of the U.S. and, and Mexico, and the, and the Canadian uh, uh, prime minister too met to sign the, the, the I think the eighth agreement into amalgamation. Understand that the, the Council on Foreign Relations is a member. A foreign member, but, a, but simply to throw people off the track that they're, they belong to Britain. At least it's based in London, put it that way. And um, yet they're members all through government. Uh, and in fact, every prime minister and president for the last hundred years has been a member of it. Uh, and that is fact. You know, their, their own historian, Carol Quigley, who had access to their archives and was all for this group, he, he said the same thing. There hasn't been a prime minister or president elected in the Western Hemisphere uh, for a hundred years it wasn't a member. So in 2005, I mentioned it on my radio shows, other ones followed suit, uh, that acts where they had come out uh, on the, with a Canadian delegation wanting complete amalgamation with the US, Mexico, and eventually all of Latin America. And uh, you remember too that the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the parent organization in London, uh, drew up the plans for, for the European Union long before that. Uh, then they drew up one for the Americas, 
And they admitted, by the way, once it was all done and they put a parliament up in, in Europe, in Brussels, that they were the guys who drafted up the whole amalgamation thing step by step. It was all of their members inside governments and bureaucracies and civil service uh, that had, had written it all up and done it all, all the work. So private organizations run our world. This is the thing. And I've always said to people, why elect a person if you don't know what they actually are? If they're a member of some private club, which they've already sworn complete allegiance to, and, and so on, uh, why would you say, let's vote him in for a Canadian uh, to serve Canada? He's already a member of an international body, and he's sworn to obey them. In fact, they put them in, by the way, the top members, as I say. Well, and this is also, you see this taken over here where, I mean, our, there's been all kinds of border agreements and things like that. Uh, they've been speaking openly about how the, the economy is now a globalized economy, and so we need to join the rat race and basically sell off all our resources and expose ourselves, expose our borders to the U.S. and, and all that kind of stuff. So there's always those steps coming in. They've never... I don't know, they haven't fully officially announced any kind of North American Union, but what you actually see is exactly that. What they've done is amalgamate uh, quietly, you see. Uh, you, you do have parts coming out in the paper, little, little, little bits in the paper here and there. The story came out even prior to that with when they did the free trade agreement. So that was a precursor to it. And it's almost like um, the preamble, if anything. The preamble is very important uh, to any declaration because that's where all the legal terms they're going to use, and they'll define those terms as they use them years going on. If you don't know the preamble of what they really mean, you get kind of lost, uh, and it's only then you understand what it's about. So the free trade agreement uh, was signed way back, of course, and through the, the 80s into the 90s, and uh, it was full of holes from the beginning. It was a rigged setup, by the way. Simon Reisman was sent, set in, he's appointed to take care of the Canadian delegations. And, and there were two sets of books, by the way. Uh, the woman who was the top bureaucrat, the, the highest bureaucrat for her department in foreign affairs, was given the task of uh, uh, typing up all these books and so on. She was pulled in at night. That was Shelley Ann Clark. Uh, she was pulled in at night into Ottawa after her work day, went back in at midnight and worked till three or four in the morning doing a, a duplicate set of books uh, for Simon Reisman. And, of course, Melbourne Roney knew all about it and so on. She couldn't even tell her husband at the time. Things got out of hand towards the end when she was basically threatened by Reisman if she ever opened her mouth, uh, she wouldn't be around too long. And she tried to get out to, to, to newspapers in Ottawa. And uh, they did print something in Ottawa, and she had an interview on, on a, a Montreal station. But then, of course, uh, she, was, she was approached by a whole bunch of fellow bureaucrats, top ones, who work with the United Nations, etc., that tried to calm her down, and don't worry, you'll be okay, etc. But she thought the best technique was to go across the country giving talks about what had happened. It's a fascinating story. And, uh, and uh, eventually they, they put her to Switzerland in a diplomatic post there. She was almost killed in, a, in an alleyway with a car that tried to run her down. She back to her apartment, was ransacked and so on. And she was really terrified. So that's when she went on the road to tell the people what was going on. She couldn't get help from any organizations in Canada, all the fake ones that are out there to speak on behalf of you know, Canadians in trouble and so on. 
and uh, and then eventually she had to fade away after telling her story because the government told her that when they withhold her pension and her drug money, a whole bit, her pension plans, everything, if she didn't shut up and just go, go away quietly, and that's what happened. But that did break out, and she talked in BC and so on in different places on what had happened, and Toronto. So the whole thing was arranged then, that there'd be a quiet integration that Canadians wouldn't be told about, and it's been going on. In 2005, when, when Axworthy and his boys came on with the banner behind them, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, with the American branch, uh, together saying that they wanted total integration, they admitted they were, they were the ones behind the drafting up, just like Europe, for the, for, uh, for the integration. And they said that, uh, just like Shelly-Ann had said back in the 90s, she had said there would be 10, uh, be done over 10 agreements over 10 years. 2010 would be the final one. The rest of the, after that, it would simply be a quiet integrations of security, um, uh, economics, uh, and various other things too. And of course, that broke out after 9-11 came in. They actually started to come out and says, Fortress America, we have to rush ahead with integration for security's sake. Remember that one? Yeah. Well, and then we were, of course, brought on board for everything else, like Libya, and, and we put a bunch of money into getting yes. some bomber or some, you know, forces over there and all that, and we're, we're just part of this whole... And that was all pre-planned too, you see. that Everything to do with warfare is pre-planned. And um, it's a war for natural resources on one hand. It's a war uh, to, de- to demolish the last countries that did not join the organizations which the Royal Institute for International Affairs set up and own, which is the Bank for International Settlements the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. This is all set up and owned by a private organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, also called Council on Foreign Relations in other countries. So that was a big thing. So those countries across there didn't belong to, to the World Bank. They didn't borrow from it. They didn't have to get the IMF to come in and manage their affairs. They didn't have private central banks owned by foreigners. And so they were, they were debt-free, and they had to be demolished to bring them into this global system of privatized central banks, because economic power is a technique of controlling everybody, everybody under the sun. Thousands and th- actually lost a lot, a lot longer than just thousands of years, much going way, way back, even, even before Greece. I mean, it was unwell understood that some people want to get fame and, and fortune uh, and go down in history by being big military commanders and, and slaughtering people and taking over countries, etc. Uh, but the ones who, who understood the economics even back then realized, no, we can own all of that and the commanders because they all borrow money from us. And it's never changed. Well, yeah, because if you control the money, I mean, at the end of the day, this is what I try to get across to people that are out there. I was actually talking to somebody today on, uh, funny enough, there was a post from Justin Trudeau and somebody, I guess a friend of mine had uh, commented on it and I just was looking at it and I, I I couldn't believe how many people were cheering for this young, you know, guy coming in or running for an office here in Canada and just uh, believing, again, that this is the guy that's going to come in and fix all these problems here in Canada. And I'm just like, no, at the end of the day, these guys don't make the decisions. They're just a lower-tier management system, basically, but they get their their orders from higher up, and ultimately it's the money that they're controlled by and the fact that... Even in Canada, we don't even really print our own currency. It's all done by foreign banks and foreign corporations. And uh, we don't, you know, yet we think we walk around saying that we're free. And uh, yet we're just as much under the gun as anybody else, really. 
yeah, the paper money was printed in Germany uh, for Canada, and, um, and that was made out of recycled plastic from the third world that we send over there for free, you know. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. The, the, it's interesting because he's Trudeau himself. The whole point of it all was um, what fascinated, fascinated me was to see that the top tycoons of international finance, including, say, the Rothschilds, for instance, in London and France and elsewhere, the same family branches, were the guys who helped set up the precursor that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They, they set up the Cecil Rhodes Foundation. And they sent him and other members across the world at that time to take over the resources of that time, the diamond industry in Africa, uh, the, the gold in Africa, and so on, and, and, and same in India too. And so they were after the resources and, and power and, and standardizing a particular system across the world. Then they, went, they joined with Lord Alfred Milner, who was a German living in London, another international financier. And they formed the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Eventually, that's what it was called. And it was highly secretive up, up until the 30s. Even Winston Churchill got angry in Parliament when he realized a, a private, uh, almost a Freemasonic organization, he called it, uh, had kept him out the loop of all of this too. And he said, they're not only making history by creating wars and being behind wars, these guys are profiting from the wars. And he said, they're also writing uh, th- th- their versions of history for our school children. They owned all the, the suppliers for your history. This has been going on for an awful long time. We get fake realities, you see. It so, starts right from the school system then. So, I mean, if we're, getting, if we're getting all of our information from being raised in this education system that has been completely hijacked and, you know, it's basically there to keep you and, you know, learn how to not question authority. You're there to eventually go out and get a job and start supporting this globalized economy and this whole system. And then we also get the information from the mainstream media because that's where most people are jacked into 24-7. So what, where people's heads are at, they think that their own thoughts and their own feelings and opinions about these things are indeed their own, when in fact the whole thing has been Designed for slowly them. manipulated into place and put into their minds, right? Yeah, there's excellent books out on, on the educational system. John Taylor Gatto wrote uh, about the American system, but you can apply it to the Canadian and British systems, all the systems. Again... It's all down to this organization. For a standardized world, you must standardize the minds of everybody. You must supply what they think is the news for the whole planet. We get it all from API and routers today. So it's all been done. And all the top media tycoons own massive chains of newspapers and uh, radio and television. Uh, they're all members, again, of this organization, this global organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, the CFR organization. And their top journalists are as well. In fact, many of their journalists work for the Council on Foreign Relations, and, and when you look up uh, CFR, you'll find out the same names if you check them up. They, they work for all the top news agents and papers in the country. Uh, so they're also the top think tank for advising governments on foreign policies. So he's a private organization giving you your news, giving you your version of reality, uh, they're heavily involved with their members in the school education system, giving it in the curriculum, what they'll be taught, what they will not be taught, by the way. Uh, the universities are the same. They depend on a lot of private grants. Rockefeller uh, gives grants to not only all the U.S. universities, along with stipulations of what he'd prefer to be taught and what not to be taught. He, he does it with Canada, too, by the way. 
And so these guys did this a lot. Right. Sorry, we're going to have to sorry, cut, cut you off there quickly, Alan. We're going to go to a two-minute break, but let's yeah. finish that point because this is absolutely crucial for people to understand about how this is all set up. So we are here tonight with my special guest, Alan Watt. So folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Truth Warrior in just a couple minutes. And we're back. We are back, and we are here speaking tonight with Alan Watt, and we are trying to break down for the listeners the history of how this ship got hijacked, basically. And what we're looking at here is basically international globalist think tanks, um, elite psychopaths is what I refer to them as because that's exactly the mentality that they possess. They view themselves as being superior, as having the right to rule over the planet. They crave power and control. A lot of people think that these sort of nefarious activities are only a result of people chasing money and trying to just get as much money as they can when of course we're talking about the people that created money and that print money and that ultimately control the global financial markets so for them money is just really a means to an end and I think back to any of my research into history and when you study a lot of the different different empires that have risen up in the history of the expansion of empire and how to do that you can see that the techniques got refined throughout history. And basically, the model of today's age is not just through military conquest, although that is clearly part of it. But the main thing that we see is they've honed their skills. They understand, obviously, the arts of infiltration, of how to take over a country and a nation from within, about how to take over land masses and resources, human beings included in that because they view us as that um, and they've learned how to do this through manipulation so anybody that's been researching this that tries to go out there and, and point at this in evidence and this information a lot of times they're just shouted down and laughed at and I would say that it's precisely because of the success of the conditioning programs that are in place out there uh, in order to protect these people that are doing this so that's really how I look at it but we have Alan Watt here with us tonight, and he's, of course, an expert in this field, and we're very glad to be speaking with him about it. So, Alan, you were getting some very key points there about how this has been done, obviously, all around the world, but, you know, in Canada and in a lot of these countries that people might feel are immune to this. And maybe you could, uh, and then we also got into the education system, the media, maybe we could continue breaking that down for people. Yeah, it really took off. I mean, it's it always been there for a long, long time. Even in ancient Greece, they talked a lot about it, the philosophers and so on, about why people would be obey, and they were they were just the people at the bottom, and why some were special or aristocratic or whatever. And they broke all that down back then, in fact, different categories of, of classifications of people. And what interested me too was in, in, in about the 17 and 1800s, you had different revolutions going on throughout Europe. And most folk are oblivious to, to most of them. They've all heard about the French Revolution, but they don't know about the ones in Germany and, and, and so on, what was going on there. Massive things were happening. And uh, behind it all, you had uh, two, really two categories of people. The dispossessed, or those who simply were just the peasants, and, and, and wealthy uh, moneylenders involved, 
and they formed a kind of society with with the more uh, intellectual ones of, of even the lower classes for revolution. And out of that became came the, the, all the art of revolution. Uh, that was an embryonic stage of it in the early phases at that time. But it was an amalgamation, as I say, to, to overthrow the existing structures, uh, going back even further. And their primary obstacle at one time was the Catholic Church even, because that was a dominant force across Europe for an awful long time. And, uh, of course, it dispensed privileges too uh, to, to different uh, people, uh, barons, aristocracy, etc. Uh, and so to cash in on it and you couldn't get into it, you simply try and overthrow them. But you need the masses to do it for you. So you, you learn how to use the masses uh, and, uh, and speak for them, if you like. And and vocalise the thoughts that they have and the misery that they have, and so you had a amalgamation of of kind of secret societies. But they had to use even Christianity, uh, a different kind of Christianity, to get it all rolling. And some of them ended up in some strange uh, circumstances of total freedom, free love, and so on. We're talking about the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, and eventually they got squashed completely uh, because they ended up being completely unruly. They even formed their own kings in some big cities in Germany. Uh, and, uh, and these guys uh, were worse than Caligula, uh, literally. And uh, that's where absolute freedom would leave the ordinary person at the bottom if he had it in chaos, in other words. So the big boys, again, philosophers took charge of this in the 1800s, especially in Britain and elsewhere. And they studied this intensely, how to use the masses, how to control the masses. And, they, and of course, people don't know that the Russian Revolution, for instance, was really set up by the U.S. and Britain, by private organizations and bankers, well-documented and admitted to today, in fact, because uh, Jacob Schiff and other ones brought in a lot of uh, so-called refugees, agitators, and anarchists, and, and, and Bolsheviks into the U.S., and they sent hundreds of them back home, trained uh, and financed, ready to start the revolution in, in Russia. That is well documented. E- even um, Trotsky, um, uh, or Bronfman, he was called, or Bronstein, he, he was caught uh, in Halifax Harbor after leaving this boat left the States, the ship going over there, and he had suitcases full of millions of dollars of cash. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I remember reading about this. Yeah, that's, that's right. really it's, interesting. Yeah, it was recorded in the Canadian history and the customs and so on. So they seized him and they put him in his prison until they found out what the hell was going on. Because yet, as a country, Canada had not, really hoped to have nothing to do with starting foreign, foreign wars, basically, at that time. Uh, and so he, they got a letter, uh, rushed them, and a telegraph from President Wilson, who, who had been leaned on by the big boys who financed him into power. And they set, rushed up an American citizenship passport by train for Trotsky, uh, and, and asked President to, to just, uh, and asked um, uh, the Canadian uh, uh, Prime Minister just to let him go, which they did. And so he arrived over there, and everyone knows what happened with the train, the whole bit went up into, uh, into Russia, and, and the whole thing started. Massive murders and chaos, and it went on for years, as we know. But uh, again, it was taking over of countries. And I, I wondered at one time what was really behind this. There were so many multimillionaires involved in communism, the stuff that the average working person doesn't get to hear, or even, they don't even think to think about it at all. Why would multimillionaires be interested in communism? Yeah, exactly. And, and yet, right through to the 1950s and 60s in the West, that they're still going around, and some today pushing the same stuff. But communism, if you want to take over the world and standardize a system, 
very quickly under one system. You set up an empire. It doesn't matter if it's called capitalist, communist. You bring in the same big, big government projects, uh, the same government agencies, institutions, and so on. You give them a form of democracy where you say, here's Politburo member one, two, and three. Vote for one of them. You've got democracy. Uh, we have the same farce in the West too, left-wing, right-wing, uh, people fall for this nonsense. As I say, each one is a vetted member, a vetted member and approved by the CFR in Canada, the US, and in and, 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 uh, and Britain, it's Royal for International Affairs. Uh, and it doesn't matter what party they pretend to belong to. You don't need the guys down below being members. It's only important, as Professor Carl Quigley said, their own historian, for their own archives, he says that the top guys are. Plus the advisors, the unappointed people, the unelected people are advisors. They are all members of it too. They control all policy for government. So it's so essentially you- like a dragnet where if they control the apparatus, the decision-making, the mechanisms such as like money and having all of the resources and the land under their control, mm-hmm. then this is actually much easier than I think a lot of people would think. Because the minute you bring up to people any kind of notion of, uh, I guess I'll use the word conspiracy. I mean, it's kind of like a bad word these days, but you know, it is what it is. And you bring that word up and people think, oh, well, hundreds of thousands of people would have to be involved in all this kind of stuff. And you're thinking, well, no, it's really just having, you have a good compartmentalized structure, very much like the military. Uh, People only know what they need to know, and only the right people in the right places know exactly their their piece of it. And I, I wonder how many people actually have full knowledge of what the whole grand spectrum agenda would be. Well, here's the beauty of it. You're right on with the compartmentalization of it. Uh, because uh, Professor Quigley again talked, gave the history of this group in his own books, Tragedy and Hope, but, but especially in the Anglo-American establishment. Very important book to understand even Canada's position and how it happened in Canada. But um, he, uh, he said that there are two main groups within, in fact, George Orwell knew too, by the way, for, for his 1984 book, where he said there's an inner party and an outer party. Uh, in in the, the CFR, or Royal Institute for International Affairs, there is an inner party. And down below you have all the helpers, as they call them. These are the guys up and coming, hoping to get into the inner party. But, but they obey, just like Freemasonry, they obey commands immediately without question. They never ask why. There must be all moral judgment to the side and go along with it. That's the order. Uh, the top group are, are all members of All Souls College in, in Oxford, the, that's, their, that's their primary place for all the top, top members, lifelong members. And um, uh, even when they had the name of Lord Alfred Milner Group, uh, they formed the Round Table Societies too. That, that's all theirs as well. And they, they realized that even if they use a system like communism, once you're finished with it, you've standardized a whole bunch of cultures that would never have conformed to each other. Uh, never have standardized uh, the school systems, education systems, bringing in a welfare system, uh, lots of government agencies which are all the same. When the, when the Iron Curtain went down, it was meant to go down at that time, because even Lenin said, this will last about 70 years. And bingo, it did. Uh, so they knew uh, what was happening. Uh, Rockefeller sent a, a, de- a delegation over in the 80s, uh, the earlier 80s, to, to see the, the Prime Minister or President of Russia. And, and they laid it on the line, you know, the European Union is coming, it will be a total amalgamation, and, and all the little countries, the Warsaw Pact countries, which you've taken over and run, will merge into the, into the West. 
and this was the, this was always the idea. Then you go into this, the, the, the Rees Commission, which was a commission put out by the U.S. Senate in the 1950s, to find out why these private organizations like the Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, and many other institutions, tax-exempt institutions, that go into the guise of charity, who run hundreds and hundreds of think tanks, by the way, that advise of governments and all policies of social behavior or whatever, or change, they also run hundreds of non-governmental organizations across the world. And, in other words, they create all policies, basically. Well, they found out, uh, Norman Dodd was a senator who went in to question them at the Ford and Carnegie Institute, and he said in his own, uh, he's up on YouTube, by the way, in one of his last talks he gave, gave he said, I was shocked, he said, to find, because his job was, why are they supporting what appear to be communism within the U.S.? And the, the guy in charge of the Ford Foundation says, we take our orders straight from the White House. This is a private multi-trillion dollar now organization. And he said, the job is to, this is the 1950s, our job is to completely integrate the education system and the culture of the Soviet Union with that of the West until they'll blend seamlessly together. This has already happened. When, when, uh, in no time at all, when you compared what Britain had, say, in social organizations, social agencies, and all the rest of it, compared them with Russia, they were pretty well identical. So it was the fastest way to standardize a whole bunch of little countries uh, that, that had so many cultural differences that never have done it in any other way. They were forced into it through, through the Warsaw Pact, or you know, join or be slaughtered. Uh, and that's a quick way of doing it. And now they're into the global society, you see. Well, and you see that being put around everywhere I've been speaking. Pierre Trudeau, don't forget Pierre Trudeau led the Comintern, that's a young communist of Canada. He was the head member in 1952, and he led the delegation for Canadians over to Moscow. That was in the papers in 1952. And yet when he ran for election in, in Canada, all the CFR boys that ran the media all knew it, and not one of them said a thing about it to, to the Canadian population. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, if you, if anybody that's listening, if you even just get into topically, even what we're talking about here, you'll be able to start seeing this. And I obviously encourage you all to get into this in depth as much as you can. But if you just even start looking at this uh, a little bit more objectively and take all these different pieces and, and really start to see what's going on here, it's going to become blatantly obvious. And now you've got all this push, even in the schools here, and talking to a lot of people and teachers and, and kids and seeing what they're talking about now. And it is really talking a lot about, they're teaching them about globalization, uh, global climate change, and how we all have to band together and stop the uh, you know, the the humans from destroying the planet and causing all these CO2 emissions and all this stuff and um, bringing in, really, at the end of the day, it's it's nothing other than UN Agenda 21. And it's really just more of, of what we've been talking about here. And, Alan, you had done something a while back on on how that whole environmentalist movement came into the minds of people here in the West and how that was brought in. Uh, did you want to comment on how that was brought into being? Yes, once again, um, the big boys uh, in these organizations, as I say, that they, they take over. You just, all you have to do is look at society and what runs society, what institutions 
uh, are set up already by the public. You take them over, uh, you, you fill up their boards with your own members, and then you bring in your own uh, curriculums, etc. Uh, back, you have to go back to the days of, of uh, Darwin. Dar- Darwin had a big impact. In fact, Darwin was put up there as a front man too. If people read, read the histories of it, it's all out there. Most of his data was taken from Wallace, who did all the traveling in the world and sending it all back and so on. And so there was a whole kind of um, star quality fiction made about Darwin too. But he belonged to the Royal Society. Now, here's the key to it. The Royal Society was also set up by this very esoteric organization uh, going all the way back to the days of Francis Bacon. And, or Roger Bacon. Or Francis, sorry. Yeah, Roger was a guy with a gunpowder, the monk. <laughs> but uh, but, Fra- but Fra- Francis Bacon had to join it. You find out that, that uh, top site Newton belonged to it, you know, uh, etc. Now, the idea was that they would give a new reality via science to, to, to basically start destroying what they thought was religion um, so that they themselves, scientists, one day would have the power over the world as having pure logic and reason and the public would be trained to obey them. Uh, Lord Bertrand Russell uh, was a member of this organization too. And he wrote about it quite openly in his own books at the time, 1920s, right through the 50s and, and so on. That, uh, and he belonged to all the international organizations uh, about how to alter the mindsets of people across the world, starting in your own countries, again through education, uh, using reason, etc., uh, etc. Et but techniques of academia, uh, which would be onto the young people's minds, which would alter their way of seeing things, so they'd be obedient to a structured, dominated society of authority. Uh, they, they never believed that the ordinary people could uh, ever handle or manage their ways, their, their life properly. This is how they put it across, in a way. And therefore, they'd have to train the public that they could not to do anything without the advice of an expert. That's where we are today. You, you saw this stuff appearing even in the Weather Channel. Oh, it's going to rain today. Then they'd go and tell you how to dress up for the rain, for God's sake. I mean, they've trained the public so easily that in his own book in 1950s, he said, eventually a mother won't be able to change the diaper on her child without expert advice. Well, that's happened. Now you have all these prenatal classes and so on. When I was young, everybody knew how to do it because everybody had, people used to have children back in those days. There was no nasty taboo about doing it and having children. So... Depopulation was one big thing. Uh, eventually, bringing in eugenics was a big, big, big part of it too. And as I say, the Royal Society is still up there yet, pushing the same agenda. Uh, the Royal Society, by the way, initially, even neutral in those boys, they, they used uh, an awful lot of Kabbalah. They were thinking of magic before they were into real sciences. And they brought a lot of that into that and merged them with real sciences. And eventually, the Kabbalah kind of died off as they got into physics, real physics, and so on. But um, to join the Royal Society, and Francis Bacon did this, uh, you had to, if you were married, you, couldn't, you had to divorce your wife or put her away, set a sum of money with, to her and her family because it was men only, and they had to have nothing, like a priesthood, nothing to do with women. And so that's what Bacon did, by the way, to join, in order to join it. And all the members up for the next 150 years had to do the same thing. It was only up until the 20th century that they allowed the first woman in as a member, in fact. But the Royal Society said that they, they were given the job of giving the public uh, their reality, giving academia their curriculum, 
in order to train the public into the ordered society run by the proper kind of elite. And here we are today. It's all here. Any science that doesn't go along with all of their agenda is simply squashed and hidden. So you, you only get the stuff coming out from them themselves. The first project that they put up, remember, the Royal Society, they're awful proud of in their own gardens, was a beehive, a glass beehive. The beehive has always done through the ages symbolized the perfect ordered society. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so what you have today is, is a complete merger now with academia, with the elite, uh, and of course academia, they think that if they get in uh, and help the masters, the really big pay masters, and they do get benefit for self-interest awfully well, all the top professors, and p- promote all these socialism, really socialism-type programs uh, under the different guises of, of, uh, of uh, social uh, sciences, etc., and even the history of that's fascinating because in the 1930s, lots of them fled uh, out of Europe over to the U.S. and Canada, and their organizations in those countries helped these basically guys who were teaching communism. They faked their credentials for them and put them straight into universities to teach under the guise of social sciences the f- same ar- idea of of destruction of the culture you're in, bringing a form of communistic culture, and it all happened perfectly right up to the present day, by the way. So most of it's already been done. Uh, now it's simply a matter of training the public that you're bad, basically, because you exist. Uh, you breathe, you eat, and we've got limited resources. This is the big training we have limited. If these guys took over the Sahara Desert at the top, uh, sand would be scarce and awfully expensive, according to them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, I mean... When you look at the progression of how this was brought into place, it's it's pretty staggering. And a lot of people, because of the fact that we've all been raised in this system, we've been trained, and we've we basically assimilated into this whole system that they wanted to set up. Um, they, of course, conducted their experiments across these different um, countries and whatnot, such as bringing up communism. And, and of course, they tried this in China and under Mao Zedong, and they've done these basic experiments on the public throughout history to see what's the best way to get people to toe the line, basically, and to support the system as opposed to supporting something that would be more of a community-oriented, um, you know, individual, empowered, uh, everybody has abundance, but they always try to take those concepts and turn them into something, so it always sounds good on the surface. I mean, this whole thing about democracy and capitalism and uh, we have freedom and all this, this all sounds good on paper, but when you really look at where we're at, uh, it's the exact opposite of what you're being told. And I find that so many times. And what we're being told, whether by the news, uh, from our education systems, it's just, it's, it's so way off of what is actually going on. It's just absolutely astounding. And uh, it's, it's hard to actually just sit there and watch it take place. But ultimately, if we could be aware of it, we could develop some sort of uh, immunity to it, or at least uh, try to make an attempt to make better decisions in our own lives, right? I guess that's really all we can do at this point. It, it is and it isn't. Here's the, here's the sad part. You see, this is not the first generation that have been created with a mindset deliberately created to suit their masters for the big plan. Uh, this has been done before. Uh, 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 because these guys have been in the, the culture creation business and alteration business for centuries. I mean, and really, they're, they're perfect at it today. When you go back into the, the, the big writings, uh, the major writings, 
of uh, these top organizations, Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute for International Affairs, even read their foreign policy magazine, which again is for the outer party, uh, it's exoteric, and, uh, but they do give you little clues here and there. But they, they, brought it, they, they, they knew uh, over 25 years ago that they would have a, a mission on their hands to take over all those countries that would not join and amalgamate into the private central debt banking system owned by foreign, foreigners, basically, and because that's how they rule all the countries. And therefore, they'd have to have lots of wars. Now, how, do you, how can you bring people from a kind of passive society into wars? You must train them from youth to, to be warriors. That's when they amalgamated and, and uh, understand the military have used um, techniques to, to desensitize people from killing uh, for warriors for an awful long time. And they, they, they got all the top game boys in when they were starting off the internet big time. And they started to use the same techniques that they trained the military with for instant kill. Don't think about it, don't hesitate, just kill and give it to children in game form and made it very addictive because there's a lot of subliminals in there that children can't turn away. And now they have problems now, they can't get them off it and they didn't have like withdrawal clinics for them. So, but I think it raised a generation of youngsters that would not have the same moralistic principles as the people who went before them. Uh, you gave them moral relativism, where there's no real right or wrong, it's all your opinion or their opinion, and everything's okay, all opinions are fine. And that had to go along with, with, with creating the warrior mindset. Then you gave us stacks and stacks and stacks of, of movies with the new heroes are all, uh, even before terrorism, they're all BETF guys in the black clad outfits. Black is the color of death. I mean, the SES troops within Germany wore the same cap as they wear today, by the way, in Canada. Uh, the same black outfit and the boots and the gun on the hip. Same outfit, folks. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a mistake. That's there for a very good purpose. It's awfully ominous. It's meant to be ominous because, you see, the hangman's hood was black, you see. It's a color of death. So you don't have even your old policeman anymore. Wow, so it's very subliminal, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, well, sorry, Alan, we're going to have to cut you off again, and we have another break, but we're going to be heading into second hour. So uh, stay with us, folks. We have another hour here with Alan Watt. We'll be back in a few short minutes. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> 